Every single one of us has some role to play. The Sustainable Hour. For a green, clean, sustainable Geelong. The Sustainable Hour. Welcome to the Sustainable Hour. We'd like to acknowledge that we're broadcasting from the land of the Wadawurrung people. We pay tribute to the elders, past, present, and those that will earn that great honour in the future. We're on stolen land, land that was never ceded, always was and always will be Aboriginal land. We acknowledge forcefully that we have so much to learn from the ancient wisdom that they have acquired from nurturing their land and their communities for millennia before their land was stolen. And we can't hope to have any form of climate justice without justice for First Nations Australians. Christmas is here. And in the country I come from, originally Denmark, we would be talking about whether it becomes a white Christmas and putting on candlelights and drinking coffees and, and having parties at the uh, workplaces and so on. So here in, in Australia, my experience of uh, this season is a, a very positive one, by the way, uh, because the same thing is happening here, isn't it? That everyone is coming together. It's also the season for awards that are being handed out left and right and everywhere. And everyone is joyful and, and doing things they don't normally do. It's also the time where families come together. Certainly on the 25th, it's a tradition that everyone gets together. And that's also sometimes in some families where the topic of climate change comes up out in the corners and there'll be these discussions and here we are living in this this year we've had a year of of fire bushfires and flooding and there's war in in the world and life is threatened more and more threatened by the things that are happening and not just climate change but so many other things as well and then at the same time we have people on sky news banging on about as usual that ah oh, the climate has always been changing and it always will the climate is changing. It's been changing before man made fire or invented the wheel. It's always been changing and it always will. And I know that's a little inconvenient for the cultists who have to continually change their apocalyptic predictions and their so-called solutions they put forward. People like us who listen to the scientists, we are labelled cultists who continually are changing our stories about our apocalyptic predictions and so on. So. The discussions are going and I think we better get ready for these family gatherings and uh, have a good argument and a smile up your sleeve. But uh, we'll be talking more about that later. Let's first hear what you have for us. Colin Market, OAM with the Global Outlook. Yes, thank you, Mick. And uh, a very Merry Christmas from this side too. Um, our World Roundup this week begins, of course, in Dubai where the COP28 finally washed up after an extra day's overtime because they couldn't come up with an agreement. It'll probably go down in history as the COP that was the beginning of the transition to a clean, green energy future. Despite it being chaired by an oil executive and attended by a record number of fossil fuel lobbyists, 
But in the end, it was the one fact above all the others that came with a historic agreement. And that was that the fossil fuel industry was named in that final agreement for the first time. All of the other 27 COP meetings have had an agreement at the end of each one. None of them up until now have named fossil fuels as uh, the fossil fuel industry as being the main opponent. Now, before this particular COP began, a growing majority of countries have wanted the final agreement to call on all states to phase out fossil fuels this decade and put the planet on a path to 1.5 degrees of warming or to stay below 1.5 degrees of warming. That's their real aim. But after early negotiations, a text, a draft text appeared that stripped all such references from the final document prompting another furious round of negotiations. And the ending text recognised the need for deep, rapid and sustained reductions in greenhouse gas emissions in line with 1.5 degrees pathways. That's their actual wording. Then it called on all parties to the United Nations Climate Treaty to contribute to the following global efforts. And they're named. That include tripling renewable energy capacity and doubling the global average rate of energy efficiency improvements. And then it included the line calling for parties to transition away from fossil fuels in energy systems in a just, orderly and equitable manner, accelerating actions this decade. Now, that took a full day's negotiations to wind up with that very watered-down issue that they're now transitioning away. But the point was they named fossil fuels, the fossil fuel industry. That's the key phrase, because it was the first time in 28 COP meetings that fossil fuels have been mentioned by name in the final agreement. Up until Dubai, the lobbyists have avoided even getting a mention in those future agreements. Now, of course, the lobbyists got lots of greenwashing get-out clauses also in the final agreement, like they mentioned nuclear abatement and removal technologies such as carbon capture and utilisation and storage, particularly in hard-to-abate sectors. That's another direct quote. But the inclusion of references to carbon reduction marks a turning of the tide. It's probably safe to say that environmentalists left Dubai and are preparing now for the next COP, COP29 in Azerbaijan. And by the way, Azerbaijan is another oil-producing state, so it's another victory for the lobbyists. But environmentalists were buoyed by the fact that they've managed to get fossil fuel, the real enemy, into the final statement for the first time. And it's also safe to say that there are plenty of environmentalists who were bitterly disappointed with COP28, that statement, and they made their feelings known. Climate scientist Bill Hare, who's chief of climate analysis and policy think tank Climate Analytics, described the document as riddled with compromise. He said it failed to put the world on a path to holding warming to 1.5 degrees, his views were echoed by the Association of Small Island States, who are, of course, in the firing line for the very first of the when when our climate, if and when our climate collapses.
And they welcomed references to science-based targets, but they said the new text did still did not put the planet on a trajectory that would keep under that 1.5 degrees target. Now, behind the COP change of mood was a series of meetings that we've been reporting about for the last two weeks, and that's the oil and petroleum exporting countries, OPEC+, Plus, which have been holding a series of meetings throughout December in Vienna, and they've failed to agree on a method of cutting the amount of product that they're selling on world markets in order to control the price of oil and still meet the world's reduced demand due to the rollout of electric vehicles. As electric vehicles are rolled out worldwide, our demand for petrol and diesel is reducing all the time. And that normally when you've got a glut of oil on the market, that puts the price, that lowers the price. So they've been trying to cut the amount that goes on onto the market and at the same time the price is still going down that's the problem that they are battling with at the moment and anybody who's got an electric car can just walk about and smile and think about all these oil rich nations now in a dilemma not knowing what they're going to be doing it's uh it's pretty safe to say that we've probably passed another tipping point there now i wish i had good news about our favourite football team, the world's only carbon-neutral sports club, Forest Green Rovers, who lost its match against the MK Dons 2-0 away at the weekend. They won last Wednesday 4-2 against Scarborough in the FA Cup, and they've got a game against Blackpool next Wednesday, also in the FA Cup. But at the moment, they're second from bottom of their ladder, and they're five points below Colchester, and the bottom three teams go down. But their webpage still says that they're determined to keep playing good football while fighting to stay into their division. And they did wish all of their followers in the UK and worldwide a very happy Christmas and a new year. And that includes us. So that also means it's my the end for my final roundup for the year. Listen to our sustainable hour for the future. Our first guest for today is John Englart. John is one of the the people uh, probably who didn't who wasn't actually at COP out twenty eight, but uh, has followed it very closely. And yeah, we've got him on to have a have a a chat about his take on the pluses and minuses maybe of what happened there. So, John, um, you're very active in on the climate front in Melbourne. And you were arrested last week. Um, we can have a bit of a chat about that along with your two dogs. Uh, so welcome to the Sustainable Hour. Thanks for coming on. What's your take on, on COP Out 28? I've attended four UN climate change conferences. So the first time was in 2015 in Paris when the Paris Agreement was signed. And the last time was in Madrid in 2019. And I've since then followed what's happening at the Conference of the Parties, the COP, online, actively. So each day I would follow what was happening and I'd update my website um, with uh, news, reports, details of the negotiations. I did that every day of 
this past conference. So I think the outcome, it's a turning point, a definite turning point that stated we need to transition away from fossil fuels. It was only one mention in the whole document. Fossil fuels was only mentioned once, but it was a very important mention. Um, coal was mentioned two years ago at the Glasgow conference to phase down coal. So it's not the actual first mention of fossil fuels. But, you know, we're up to conference number 28, and it's only been in the last uh, two years that they've started actually naming the elephant in the room. So initially coal, and this time they've widened it to fossil fuels. So coal, oil and gas are problematic. So it wasn't transformational change. It was an incremental change, but it's a turning point. In the last uh, draft document of the um, global stock-taking text, there were other clauses inserted, um, such as Clause 29, which states, recognises that transitional fuels can play a role in facilitating the energy trend transition while ensuring energy security. So, you know, that's um, targeting that um, gas will be used as a transitional fuel. We've had the Labor Party pushing here in Australia, pushing that line that gas is a transitional fuel, but it isn't. It has as much, if not greater, carbon intensity as coal, and we need to move off gas just as much as coal. And there were other, there were quite a few other loopholes, such as its endorsement of carbon capture, utilisation and storage, and also pushing that um, the increase in nuclear power would be needed. So there were 22 countries that signed a pledge to double nuclear power by 2050. Most of those countries already have a civil nuclear industry, I might add. Um, but the economics of nuclear is really bad. It is very, very expensive to do. And especially if you're starting from scratch, it takes a, a minimum of a decade to establish a civil nuclear power industry. So for Australia, it's not really an option. One thing that nobody heard about was what our climate minister, Chris Bowen, was saying at COP. But you put it on your blog because you had a recording of someone who had filmed a TV screen there. It was sort of secret, wasn't it? And I thought it was quite significant what he said. The science then tells us the conclusions which should be reflected, I believe, in the conclusions of this COP. That to keep 1.5 alive, we must peak emissions by 2025. To keep 1.5 alive, we must reduce emissions by 43% by 2030 and 60% by 2035. I think that should be reflected in the outcome. To do that, we can triple renewable energy in a way that you have led us to sign, and we agree at double energy efficiency. And our NDCs should be aligned with 1.5 degrees. We also have to face this fact head on, that if we are to keep 1.5 degrees alive, fossil fuels has no ongoing role to play in our energy systems. 
and I speak as the climate and energy minister of one of the world's largest fossil fuel exporters. Yes, that was at the Majlis event, which is a tribal council event in Arabia, so it's a traditional forum. But uh, the uh, COP president had this Majlis event whereby ministers could state off the cuff what they thought the primary issues and solutions were for the negotiations. So Chris Bowen got up and spoke for about four or five minutes, putting forward that we needed an ambitious agreement out of this COP, that we needed to phase out fossil, unabated fossil fuels. He put the word unabated, and that's a crucial weasel word because that means they can then push carbon capture and storage or using offsets for expansion, continued expansion of fossil fuels. Fossil fuels has no ongoing role to play in our energy systems. And I speak as the climate and energy minister of one of the world's largest fossil fuel exporters. And we embrace that fact and acknowledge it because we also live in the Pacific and we are not going to see our brothers and sisters inundated and their countries swallowed by the seas. We're not going to do that. So we stand with them and we stand with you, Dr. Sultan, for a very strong outcome. Now, there are many ways it can be reflected that fossil fuels don't have a future in our energy system and we will be flexible with you to find the way, the, the pathway to give you the chance you need to write that into history. So he was uh, quite ambitious uh, with his statements at that event, but it was reported to some extent in uh, the mainstream media. The Guardian quoted from it, and I believe the uh, uh, Nine News uh, Fairfax papers also quoted from that. But yes, I uh, was able to get a video of that speech and put it up on my blog as well. And I believe that some of that influenced the COP presidency in designing the second draft um, agreement that was put forward and that was agreed to. John, is there anywhere that we can, that you found out, because you listened to just about everything that went on, Australia went into this COP with an idea of increasing our um, our profile with the other nations because we were hoping to hold a future COP here in Australia. That seemed to just disappear off the agenda after about day three. Were you aware that it, it, it had any traction or is it just gone now? No, Australia is still planning to hold COP31 2026 here in Australia. So next year it'll be in Azerbaijan. The following year will be in Belém in Brazil and the year after that. Um, they haven't made a firm decision yet about COP31, but Australia has probably got the front running in terms of holding that COP. We should be holding it right now in Cairns just <laughs> to drive home to the rest of the world what climate change looks like. Yes, well, Cairns Airport is um, underwater mm. at present. So no one can get in and out through Cairns Airport 
and it's an island city. It's blocked on all sides. Yep, and that means that they couldn't fly in or fly out. Once they were there, they were stuck. They'd have to keep negotiating. Language warning. Hello, my name is Oblivia Colwine, and on behalf of the fossil fuel industries, I would like to say a huge thank you for all your support this bumper year. People like you have pumped billions of your hard-earned pounds into our gas and oil businesses. The cash from your pensions has helped us dig, drill and destroy more of the planet than ever before. We've even managed to build a few little wind turbines to keep Greta and her chums happy. <laughs> Cute. You see, every little drop from your precious nest egg adds up. So while the global temperature may go up a teensy-weensy degree or two, our profits are literally soaring. And that's all thanks to you. So to guarantee us all a warmer, snugglier future, please keep sending your pensions our way. You know the drill. Oh, fracking hell! Okay, start again, start again. Yes, sir. Hello, bonjour, ciao, stronzi, namaste, hum mother chodhe. I'm from the Australian government with a message to the world. As cities bake, fires rage, reefs die, jet streams weaken, and six ligma events cause climate scientists to shit their dacks, many are wondering if we've finally broken our favourite planet. But don't despair, Australia's here to help. No, not by phasing out coal and gas, by inviting the world to a big fucking dinner party. Introducing our bid to host the 2026 UN Climate Summit. COP31. We know, after a decade of climate inaction under the last government, our international reputation is in tatters. Thankfully, this is a new government. As Chris said, Australia, Australia is back. back. But for those of you not fluent in Cantonese, the official language of the Australian government, what he's saying is, we're back to approving coal mines, expanding gas production, and opening up the NT to fracking. So we really need to host a COP to restore our reputation and look like climate leaders. Coal, gas, carbon credits, PR, hosting COP. By these powers combined, we are full of shit. Yes, we know. After undermining two decades of climate summits with lies, loopholes, artificially inflated baselines and our fake Kyoto credits, many of you would rather shit in your hands and clap than let Australia host a COP. That's why we came up with the genius idea of co-hosting it with countries the world actually likes. Our Pacific Island neighbours. Because unlike us posers, they're actually being climate leaders. These guys introduced a plan to cut shipping emissions, which we voted against. And these guys issued the Port Vila Resolution, which calls for an end to fossil fuel expansion in the Pacific, and which we've ignored. Even kids in the Pacific are bigger climate leaders than us. They've prompted the International Court of Justice to decide if polluters like us are legally accountable for failing to act on the climate crisis. So clearly, co-hosting COP with the Pacific would make our bid look much less shit. And it worked. The Swiss wanted to host this COP too, but they withdrew their bid when they saw ours. And those Pacific Islands are totes up for it too. Kind 
kind of, sort of. All they've asked for in exchange is that we end fossil fuel subsidies and stop approving new coal and gas projects. To which we said, settle Gretel, be grateful for the aid we give you to deal with climate damage. Like the twin cyclones that just devastated Vanuatu. Sure, that aid is a fraction of the subsidies we give to the companies who caused that damage. But what did you expect when we told you we'd stand shoulder to shoulder with our Pacific family? We didn't mean against climate change. We meant at the canopy table at COP31. So come on world, let this major fossil fuel exporter that's cock-blocked climate action for decades co-host a crucial summit with the most climate vulnerable nations in the world while ignoring their pleas to stop harming them just so we can look like climate, climate leaders. leaders. It's not like we're asking you to let some petrostate human rights abuser host COP and have the boss of a huge oil company preside over it. Imagine that. Then the world would really be fucked. COP31. We can't wait to see you in Australia. Spirdalai. Kefe. Prima kasi kami bangsat. Authorised by the Department for Orchestrating Our Glorious Climate Makeover and Canapes. Thank you to all our patrons for making the Honest Government ads possible, especially our patron producers. If you want to help us keep governments honest, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash thejuicemedia or you can grab some merch from our store. The equation is relatively simple. We need to use environmentally friendly methods to create electricity. That means wind or solar power, or uh, if you're lucky enough to be close to it, hydro power. But the, um, the fossil fuel industry is very, very clever at trying to keep itself in business, basically, because all of those mean that the fossil fuel industry is going to be phased out. And what they do in Australia is that they donate money, large amounts of money to both of the main political parties. So they've always got the ear of the politicians making the decisions. And it's the politicians that are floating ideas like carbon capture and um, and green energy from hydrogen. And they don't say it's going to be green hydrogen. So the energy that uses to create hydrogen or separate hydrogen is frequently when that when he, when you come to look at it, it comes from a fossil fuel, and yep. they're keeping themselves in business. That's what that's their only real aim is to keep themselves in business. They happen to be really really rich because they've had best part of a century selling uh, at the prices that they want to sell oil and fuel to the world. So they're incredibly rich and they're using that money to keep themselves in business. It's as simple as that. This is coal. Don't be afraid. Don't be scared. At the heart of this conflict is a battle between truth and science and power and lies. Climate change is a complex problem with unprecedented implications for our future. How do you personalize a real sense of urgency about a problem whose most severe long-term impacts are potentially decades away, but our ability to avoid them exists only in the short term? You would need a time machine to fling us into the future to see what's coming and then pull us back to the present in time to act.
Fortunately, we have one. It's called music. The Climate Music Project collides powerful climate models with original music to create a sonic landscape that transports audiences from the climate's past and present to where it may be centuries in the future. This is created by a unique collaboration between world-class scientists, artists, and technicians. What do you want the future to sound like? This was a trailer, a YouTube trailer for the project called Climate Music. They have a website, climatemusic.org, and you can find them on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. We talk more about what they do and about many other musicians in our annual music show, the Sustainable Music Hour that we have just launched and put out in the podcast stream, where we also search for and nominate this year's climate anthem who and i think we can disclose that already here now is louise harris from the united kingdom who has put out this song that's going viral at the moment called we tried the world is changing all the time and you know it ain't right yeah i know you think twice It takes you on a ride And leaves you with no respite Well, I think I've done my time But I I don't want to I think music and art like has a very very unique power I think particularly music because it can activate our emotions about about issues it's not just like an intellectual response it's like you actually feel how you feel about the crisis um so I think music has this ability to move people and touch people touch their hearts in a way that like speeches or scientific evidence or marches it can't really um so yeah i think historically music has been instrumental in revolutions in in social change and we really need now more than ever to have like a cultural revolution we need everyone in the arts world in the music world film everything entertainment you know to use their like platform and 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 use the power of the fact that they're doing art and music 
use that to move people and to kind of educate and inspire and empower people um, in relation to this crisis because in a way it's like you know in a way we all we all have responsibility and we all we're all making a choice about how to respond to this crisis even if we don't think we are you know if we're just going about our lives as normal it, as if nothing's happening if there's there's, there's, there's no life-threatening and emergency happening um, that's kind of perpetuating climate denial really it's just communicating to other people it's okay to ignore this and do nothing and yeah man it's just, that's not the case you know it's not really okay to do nothing unless you want a horrific future of water shortages etc food shortages and fly me where the birds still fly because smoke fills up a sky because we ran out of time oh well we tried This song, I wrote it about the climate crisis and what will happen if we don't act. So it's written from a perspective of our currently projected future and we run out of time to prevent irreversible catastrophe. We run out of time to save everything that we love. Um, but that's not true. Obviously, we haven't run out of time. There still is time to act in, in collective climate action. So the, the, the purpose of this song is to, is to allow people to feel how they would feel if we let this happen, if we let this worst case scenario happen and use that as motivation to spur themselves into collective climate action, which I believe is our only hope now. You know, we, we completely outnumber the people in power who don't know what love is, you know. Um, so we just need to realise our strength in numbers and we have time to change things. We had a longer talk with Louise the other week and we're putting that interview out as a separate podcast. So you'll find that in our podcast stream, which you can find on any phone if you have a podcast player. Just look for The Sustainable Hour. I've noticed when I put up on Facebook uh, a post about climate change, I usually get about zero response from anyone. But if I put up a picture of my dog, whoa, <laughs> suddenly I have 70 different comments. And John, I noticed that you have not just one, but two dogs. And they are actively a part of your climate action activities, as I understand it. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. So this is uh, Indiana Jones and Juliet. And about a year ago, they uh, started Chihuahuas for Climate Action. So they, they go cycling with me, and we've got signs on the bike that says, no new coal, no new gas. You have to be barking mad. <laughs> um, so it's, uh, the sign is used as a conversation started with people because they ask about the dogs and about climate change and climate action so that allows me to start conversations dogs uh, are good for that aren't they i mean I, when i walk with my dog I, i get to know people down the street because they stop me and have a chat about which dog is it and how is it going and all these things yep there's an opening there for somebody to come up with a couple of cats 
to say that we are fossil fuel cats. We don't give a stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, um, last Saturday, I actually uh, was arrested for climate civil disobedience along with my two dogs. So we went into uh, Flinders Street Station as part of Extinction Rebellion and I think there were about 75 people arrested for civil disobedience, refusing to, to move. And the police were quite polite to us. Um, they asked us to move. I said no. And then they said, we're arresting you. Would you like to come with us? And we came with them and they um, took our details and then released us and told us, don't go back to the people still sitting there. What did Juliet and uh, Indiana Jones think about that? Oh, they thought it was a real adventure, of course. <laughs> did they use a police dog to arrest them? No, they didn't. They didn't ask for their um, IDs either. But they had dog license. tags on them so they could prove who they were. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's nice. Look, that um, gave a nice little light touch, and it made you. It actually put you on the news broadcast, didn't it? It did. I was on at the end yeah. of the ABC News report um, on the climate protest, and that's really what the protests are about—about about raising the image of the people and the animals that um, are affected by climate change. That's right. So. You know, my two dogs feel the heat and, you know, when it gets really hot, you know, it's too hot to actually go walkies on the um, asphalt or concrete paths. So we have to recognise that, you know, they feel the impacts of climate change along with us. So mm. they've also got a voice in this. So I've uh, set up a, their own social media account and they actually get more engagement than I do. <laughs> That'd be right. Followers yep. on Twitter. Now, yeah. are you going to sort of build on this, John? Are you are you going to be sort of turning your dogs into celebrities and turning up at more protests? Well, you never know. They might even win an award sometime. <laughs> I, I won the Environmental and Sustainability Award by Marybeck Council in 2019 for my ongoing work on climate action and sustainability in my municipality. So maybe they'll actually win an award for um, their educational raising. Yeah. John, why did you, like, the the weather was uh, very, or said that before, very uh, inclement conditions. It wasn't all that cold, but lots of rain. There would have been lots of reasons, excuses for you not to take part. Why did you sit out in the rain on a wet well, street? It was raining all day from when we left home. And I went to, I live in the northern suburbs, so I was going to catch the train in with the dogs on my bicycle. But I got to the station and found out the, um, the line I'm on um, was down. They were doing repair work. So I had to actually cycle 14 kilometres into the city in the rain with the dogs and then on the march and on the action at uh, outside Flinders Street Station, it also continued to rain. 
So I was um, astride my bicycle holding up an umbrella in one hand with the dogs in the basket. Yeah, <laughs> it was a little bit challenging. The people sitting on the ground would have got wet bums. Um, so we were lucky in that, that regard, being on the bike. Yeah, why did you do it though? Like you've given plenty of excuses that you could have uh, used to not take part. I've actually been involved um, for the last 20 years. So I've done letter writing, petitions. I've met with my federal and state MPs. I've attended COPs. So I've tried to influence people as much as I can, um, been ad advocate for change. So I thought it was important that I be part of that protest and to actually be arrested because the media has been failing to report all the impacts of climate change. And when they do, they are often give equal time to deniers or people who belittle what's happening with our, our uh, weather and climate and the impacts in store for us. That's something that really annoys me, this balance where the media says we have to have a balance. So if we, here's somebody with a really sensible point to get across, and then afterwards we'll get an idiot on because we have to have a balance. It's quite ridiculous that it works that way, but that's, that's, that's the Murdoch influence, I'm afraid. John, what's your advice? Christmas dinners are coming up and people will be talking climate change, obviously. And there will be the climate denying so-called quotation mark Uncle Bob who says, oh, the climate has always been changing. You're just alarmist. The problem is we've had a steady climate for the last 10,000 years, but now climate change is accelerating and 90% of of the warming is due to the burning of fossil fuels. Um, so it's getting worse. The latest science, so on the cryosphere, um, which is all the um, ice sheets and um, mountain glaciers, says that we've passed tipping points for West Antarctic ice sheet and the Greenland ice sheet. So we've already started their collapse. Now, that's a slow-moving disaster, which will happen over hundreds of years, but it's going to rise sea levels. So all our coastal cities, agricultural land near the coast is going to be inundated. We've started that process off. We can't stop it. We can limit the damage. So at the moment, the East Antarctic ice sheet hasn't started collapsing and we can still hopefully prevent that process from happening. But we've also got the loss of mountain glaciers in South America, in the Himalayas, and that's going to impact agriculture, people's use of water in those societies because um, the mountain glaciers act as um, they build up the snow and then slow release it during the um, spring and summer, which is used in agriculture. But once you get the decline of those mountain glaciers, you've got a real problem 
in terms of those societies for their agriculture and water consumption. Yeah, and they, they, the Everest or the Himalayan range in particular, they essentially store the water for the two most populous nations on the planet. That's China and India. Mm. Uh, and China and India are going to experience very changing conditions when it comes to their water and their agriculture over the next decade. And it's good to see that China is now the leading nation on transition, to, especially to solar. I mean, they make more solar panels than anybody else, and they're installing more solar than anybody else on the planet. I think there's also internal politics in China, and mm -hmm. we don't understand the internal politics. Z has been, if you like, an environmental reformer, and he's been pushing a strong rollout of wind and solar, yep. but he's also got resistance as well. And that's what Australians and other people around the world don't realise. There's internal politics happening in China as well. So I think, you know, China is more advanced than we often think in terms of their transition away from fossil fuels. At the weekend, in one of Alan Kohler's news broadcasts on the ABC, he had, um, he's famous for his graphs, and he had the graph of nations making electric vehicles and vehicles, just vehicles in general. And at the moment, China is making more vehicles than any other nation. It's making more vehicles than the next two, which I think is um, South Korea and America. Now, those two put together, it's way ahead of anything else. And most of the vehicles they're turning out are electric. So we're a bit sort of um, uh, insulated from this world trend in Australia because we've still got people who think it's it's great to drive around in a in a small truck to drop the kids off at school. But that's going very much against the world trend. The world trend is to drive electric and drive electric cars from that are made in China at the moment. Well, Australia still doesn't have fuel efficiency standards. Mm. We're on par with Russia in terms of that. All other developed nations have fuel efficiency standards, including the United States. So we're out of whack and we're getting all the inefficient petrol and diesel cars flooding into Australia at the moment. And I know yeah. EVs are picking up, but we haven't got the policy regulations in place yet to really ramp up the electric vehicles. But we also need to change in terms of encouraging um, more public transport and active transport, walking and cycling in our urban areas and cities. So the governments need to ramp up um, those areas as well. John, it would appear to me if you begin at the Christmas table to talk about the science and and these climate events that you mentioned, the melting of the ice and so on, that's not going to really impress Uncle Bob. Because if Uncle Bob is like Mr. Bernardi, who is talking on Sky News, he'll just answer with something like, oh, you guys have always been panicking about something, you know. Back in the 70s, you were panicking about 
global cooling, actually. And then it was the ozone layer. And then came the acid rain catastrophe that would happen. And now you're talking about climate and melting of ice. He basically will not believe you. Whenever that is brought up in a conversation where I'm involved, I'll just say, well, it all depends. Do you want to believe Corrie Bernardi, who is a, 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 a former liberal MP who was known for his um, outlandish statements? Or would, you, would it be better perhaps to believe 99% of the world's scientists given the choice between Cory Bernardi or 99% of the world's scientists, which is the sensible group to follow? And you just have to look at what's happening. So the um, massive amounts of rainfall and flooding happening in Cairns right at the moment. So we know for every degree of warming, the atmosphere can carry 7% more water. So that's increasing um, extreme rainfall events. We know temperatures are rising, making heat waves longer, hotter, more intense. And that's a silent killer. More people die from heat waves, heat stress, than any other natural disaster. Especially in the Horn of Africa. Yes, globally. And, I mean, even... Um, the billionaire iron ore magnate uh, Andrew Forrest has come out pushing the uh, threat of um, lethal humidity for a lot of the people in the tropics and subtropics. So he's actually got a PhD in marine science, so he's got some understanding, and it's been interesting to, to watch him come out as, I guess, a billionaire activist for phase-out of fossil fuels, rapid phase-out. What keeps you persisting then, John, in, in this, that we're hearing, you know, we're talking about the negative things that are involved, and what sustains you in this work? You've been active for a long time. I've been active for a long time. So in the 1970s, I was actually on the um, rides against uranium to Canberra when we talked about alternative technologies, so the importance of um, solar, even back then, wind, and we weren't listened to at all. In fact, you know, at, um, in 1977, Prime Minister Fraser um, was um, on a um, video call with students in Hobart, and they asked him about um, solar and solar research. And he said, we don't think there's much in that. We're actually um, ramping up our investment in um, coal technology at the time. Um, so, but solar has been around since the 1970s. And if Australia had invested much earlier, we've got world-leading people in that area of um, solar panel research, improving the efficiencies. And so a lot of what China has done in the last decade, two decades, is based on Australian research in um, solar. Yeah. Um, what, what sustains you now? Why did you, what made you get on the street, get arrested, et cetera, et cetera? Why do you keep going? Because everything that we can do now will save lives. Every fraction of a degree 
we can avoid in global warming will save lives. It's as bad as that. Mm. So I've heard um, Professor Sheldon Huber say, this was about a decade ago, say that um, if we reached four degrees by 2100, the earth would have a carrying capacity of one billion people. We've got eight and a half billion people now. That's a lot of deaths involved. We're still on track with current policies for about three degrees warming by 2100. So we've still got a lot of death in store from famines, from droughts, from extreme weather events. And we can avoid a lot of those deaths if we reduce our fossil fuel emissions quickly. Pretty simple, really, isn't it? John, I think it's important to remember now that and, and to have in that Christmas discussion the look at the economy. Because right now, as we know, renewables have become cheaper than fossil fuels. And this is a big change that has happened just in the last few years. And if you look at the different graphs for renewables, it's actually very impressive. Everything is, seems to be rising exponentially. Not a straight line, but more like this kind of curve that suddenly rises up. If you look at the amount of installed battery capacity at what's happening just in the last few years, the curve is going up really, really fast now. Gigawatts of capacity is being installed in batteries, and it's going faster every year. The fossil fuels will not have to be phased out by force, but simply because nobody wants them. When you have batteries that are cheap, when you have renewable energy floating in the grid and it's cheap, that's the end of fossil fuels. So maybe that discussion uh, around the Christmas table needs to change from the science and the, the melting ice and over to the fact that economy is taking care of it already. Mm. Yeah, there's, there's a good argument for that, Mick, and that is that the, we really don't need to do much now. Uh, we've set the momentum going. I'm talking about environmentalists, and the market can take over because eventually people are going to be saying, hey, I want I want the same conditions that the environmentalists are getting. They're not paying electricity bills because they've got enough solar. And I, I, don't, want, I don't want to pay as much in fuel anymore. I want an electric vehicle. Uh, and so the demand from them, we haven't yet hit that tipping point, but it's there on the horizon. We can see it. And the other thing is, as we have talked about, that little change in the outcome of the global climate summit, the COP28, actually could be brought into the Christmas table just as well. Because you can tell Uncle Bob that, hey, listen, all countries in the world have agreed that fossil fuels need to be phased out. So who are you? Yeah, you can sit there and say that that's not a good idea, but you're up against all nations on the planet who have agreed that we are now going to phase out this polluting, dangerous, toxic fuel. That's right. Yeah, the 19th century industry. And of course, in terms of local gas, we've got a decline in gas from the Bass Strait happening. And we've got the push by the Victorian government for more households to transfer off gas to electric appliances. They're putting in place subsidies now for to help people 
do that um, transition. And that'll turn out to be cheaper because as gas reduces, the price of gas will increase. Hmm. It becomes a gas price spir upward spiral. Yeah, I think um, I'm rather hopeful that um, maybe the next year, let's say 2024, will be uh, what the gentle tinkling of crossing tipping points is going to turn into a much more of a jingle. Because as we go past all the tipping points, it's, it, they're, they're all there and um, we're very close to them. It's nice to know. I'm much more hopeful looking at 2024 than I was a year ago when we were looking at 2023. Uh, just one point, John, you mentioned about gas and, and the uh, reluctance of fossil fuel companies to, uh, well, their keenness to lengthen their demise. There's plans to do seismic blasting along the coast in Victoria. So, you know, that's in our backyard. And the group Ocean, based in Polo Bay, they're having a road trip along the, the coastal areas, outlining the, the negative points of seismic testing. So we'll, we'll put information about that. But I think it's important people, that people know that. There is lots and lots of reasons not to, to do seismic blasting. And, yeah, and that opportunity to be educated around is going to be Travelling right along the the coast over over January, so we'll put, we'll put some information about that in our notes. Right. Well, look, now is the time for us to um, uh, us. I've forgotten what we are again. What are we again? We we are living legends. No, look, I wrote it down, didn't I? Life achievement. We're life achievers. Now it's time for us life achievers. To wish everybody the season's greetings, a Merry Christmas, a very Happy New Year. Thank you for listening to us. We will be back in the new year because we're unstoppable. Unlike climate change, which is, and we'll be coming up with new ways in 2024. Have a great transition and be the difference. Thanks to all our regular listeners and uh, yeah, have a great refreshing nourishing break and we'll be back next year be the difference and enjoy being together yeah <laughs> with your dogs thanks indiana and juliet thanks for coming on john appreciate it yeah Cause I wanna be nasty, wanna be brave, not let his fear make me afraid I don't wanna pretend I'm too small to jump the wall I'm just trying to remember her voice Telling me that every day's a choice for where this good hurts bad But my child, you always can be the difference We children are not sacrificing our education and our childhood for you to tell us what you consider is politically possible in the society that you have created. We have not taken to the streets for you to take selfies with us and tell us that you really admire what we do. 
We children are doing this to wake the adults up. We children are doing this for you to put your differences aside and start acting as you would in a crisis. We children are doing this because we want our hopes and dreams back. Be the difference I know the world